0: Have you heard? Have you heard?
1: Have you heard? Have you heard? Have you heard? Have you heard? heard? Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire.
2: And I'm Jack Schneider.
1: And Jack, I just want to know, how are you doing? (laughs)
2: What? (laughs) Where are you going with this, Jennifer?
1: I'm expressing human kindness and concern. That I know you're <laughs> juggling a lot these days.
2: Whoever this is who looks like Jennifer right now, I, uh, I'm i on to you.
1: In all seriousness, Jack, I know that you have a lot going on right now. That's why it takes you so long to respond to my emails.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, your, your sympathy is um, packaged so nicely in criticism there, Jennifer. Um, yes, my daughter, in fact, as we are recording, is at the park by herself a couple miles away. So I am going to go pick her up soon. Uh, this is what happens when one parent is teaching in person and uh, one parent is teaching online and the child is learning at some point online. Um, But we're in the kind of pickle that I think lots of families are right now where we're just trying to figure out what to do with our child so that she doesn't feel ignored and is not unsafe during the day.
1: Well, in addition to all of the balls that you've been juggling, you've also been coming up with great ideas for this podcast. And this episode that we're about to share with the world is no exception.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, one of the ways that I've been staying sane is by having virtual coffee with colleagues from around the US and around the world. And out there in the Pacific time zone uh, is David Menefee Leiby of Pomona College. And we've been having coffee lately, and just talking about education policy. And he said something the other day that really just made smoke come out of my ears uh he was talking about the unraveling of the charter school consensus something that you know we've talked about on this show and that you and i have both written about jennifer um and he said what happened is that the charter school treaty was broken and even before really knowing what he was talking about there i i I knew he was on to something. Um, and as he explained it, I thought, oh my gosh, this totally explains what has happened with regard to the charter school movement, but it does so much more. It explains how we got Betsy DeVos. It explains why people are so perplexed by so many of DeVos's moves. Um, and I think it offers us a really nice framework for thinking about future policy efforts.
1: Well, you can probably hear why I would be intrigued by these conversations, so let's get down to it, shall we? David Metafee Leiby is a professor of politics at Pomona College in Claremont, California, and part of the reason for his deep interest in the politics of the charter school movement is that he's had a front row seat now in two different states that have been at the very center of that movement.
0: California And Minnesota are two of the most important places for the beginnings of charters more than a generation ago in the the late 80s and early 90s. California enacted the second charter law in the country in 1992 after Minnesota enacted one in 1992. And I had seen in California that there was very explicitly a kind of negotiated settlement out here to agree on that charter law in 1992. And the agreement was between the Democratic majority in the state legislature and the Republican governor, Pete Wilson, at that time, Um, and then a variety of school reform factions inside the state from left to right.
1: Those early negotiations in California brought together Republicans and Democrats who had very different goals when it came to public education, and charter schools offered something for both camps.
0: On the right, there were people who supported vouchers. There was about to be a voucher initiative on the California ballot. And on the left, there were school reform activists that were strong supporters of what in those days we used to call restructuring or site-based management. And the idea then was to devolve control over a school down to the site so that the stakeholders at the site, including teachers and parents and community members, could devise um, school action plans or school improvement plans for that particular site. This conversation went on in California and they negotiated an agreement to, to enact charters, and that has been the sort of model in my mind ever since, was there was this sort of treaty between people on the left and people on the right, or people in the Democratic Party and people in the Republican Party, and there were things that each side gained from the treaty and the things that they gave up.
1: The nature of a treaty is that you don't just get stuff, you also have to give something up. And that's exactly what happened with the Charter School Treaty. Both Republicans and Democrats got something, but they also had to make some pretty substantial sacrifices. Let's start with the Democrats.
0: Within the Democratic coalition, what they gained was public support for school reform and and increased resources going into elementary and secondary education and support sort of nationally and credibility in school reform. And what Democrats gave up was support for teachers unions. The idea was that these charter schools would probably not be unionized. Um, They wouldn't operate under the traditional union contract. They would operate in some new way. You know, this goes back, Al Shanker at AFT was one of the original participants in this conversation about what a charter school might involve. So Democrats, one of the things they gave up on was sort of a conventional union role in schooling and in controlling how schools were run. The second thing that Democrats gave up was desegregation. It sort of pushed questions about access and inclusion off of the agenda because charter schooling was about something completely different and there would be enrollment school by school by school and you couldn't do systemic desegregation in that way.
1: As for the Republicans, the charter school treaty delivered some substantial policy wins.
0: From the Republican side, what they gained was a challenge to what they saw as the public school monopoly and the traditional system of state legislation and school district and collective bargaining and unionized teachers playing a strong role in controlling that system. Conservatives had, over the 1970s and 1980s, gradually lost control over most state and local education policy through that collective bargaining process. And they were able to sort of regain a purchase in that by creating a a separate system, an organizational system that they could potentially control with their coalition. Another thing that conservatives or Republicans gained was test-based accountability, which they were pushing for. There would be transparent public testing of each individual child every year, and those test scores would be visible to the public. It's hard to remember now because test scores are kind of everywhere all the time. But in the 1960s and 70s, most students took tests, but the results of those tests were private. That is, that they were held by schools and parents and and teachers, but they weren't revealed to the public. And one of the things that Republicans gained was this idea of test-based public accountability
1: but Republicans in California also had to give up a lot, namely the central idea that animated school reform on the right, the Milton Friedman-inspired vision of private school vouchers.
0: Republicans and conservatives had pushed vouchers in many places around the country including notably Wisconsin. So in Wisconsin, we were watching an experiment with a statewide voucher program in Milwaukee play itself out. And in California, there was about to be a voucher initiative on the ballot. It was Prop 174 at that point. And Republicans sort of backed off on thinking that that was a way forward in California and instead went with charter legislation to allow parents to basically take the money of their child, not to a voucher school, but to a charter school. It was similar to a voucher program, but it was still under the umbrella of the public sector. A second, thing that people in the conservative coalition gave up was religion in schools, that one of the major factions inside the Republican Party that emerged in the 70s and 80s was evangelical Christians who had been fighting public schooling for decades and decades and wanting to get their children out of the public school system, which they saw as secular and godless. That was one of the major drivers of the Republican education policy coalition in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And and charter schools sort of do away with that idea that charter schools at at the time in the nineties when the treaty was set were acknowledged to be things that would operate under the public umbrella and they would be secular. Couldn't have a Christian charter school, or you couldn't have a Catholic charter school or a a Jewish charter school or a, a Muslim charter school, that religion was taken off the agenda. So that was something that was given up by conservatives in this coalition work.
1: So Jack, obviously my first thought when you told me that you had been having these conversations with David was, you know, a sense of having been left out.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Jennifer, I can't invite you to everything that would make you a roommate rather than a co-host.
1: Well, I do feel like I really missed out on something just listening to how interesting David's take is. This is such a distinct way of viewing what happened with the evolution of charter schools than we're used to. I'm thinking back to an episode that we did eons ago now. Uh, we called it the DNA of charter schools, and we did it with uh, journalist Rachel Cohen. And it was sort of about how, you know, there's this founding story about charter schools, that it was really, it was a, the Democrats came up with the idea. And then what happens is that over the years, they sort of stray from their purpose and that that people figure out how to marketize them, profit enters into the equation. And Rachel was arguing, you know, that, that kind of neoliberal ingredient was there from the very beginning. And so we're getting another take on this, which is that actually, Both the sides that sat down ended up having to give up some things, and that the right, in many ways, gave up more than the Democrats. I have to say, this is, you know, I feel like my eyes are really being opened. Uh
2: (laughs) Um, yeah, I, I have long argued that charter schools represented a compromise between the right, which had long pushed for vouchers and other forms of privatization and marketization of public education and the left, which, uh, you know, had long been in favor of traditional public schools and nothing else. Um, and I think one thing that, David is bringing to the table here is a framework for helping understand the way that a kind of negotiated compromise like this plays out, right? That it isn't simply that conservatives capitulate, Um, and give up on vouchers. It's not simply that the left decides to throw them a bone or suddenly becomes enamored with charter schools. It's actually more complicated than that. And the reason I'm so interested in talking about this is that these kinds of compromises are not permanent. Um, That one of the points that David makes repeatedly is that these are always impermanent arrangements. And so then it becomes really important to think about who is trying to accomplish what with regard to the creation of these treaties? And I think, as we'll see in our conversation, that conservatives who gave up so much actually may have gained more because this treaty gave them a stepping stone towards their long-term aims, whereas for many neoliberals, charter schools were an end in of themselves, right? That they were not seeking to go further than that. For them... It was a closed treaty, it was a negotiated settlement, Um, it was detente. And it turns out that you get Betsy DeVos 20 years later and suddenly people are wondering what the heck happened to detente
1: back to David Menafi leiby If you were paying close attention at the top of the show, you probably caught that he is a scholar of politics and his thinking about the charter school treaty evolved based on his observations of similar arrangements in other fields that have nothing to do with education. To help us get a handle on this whole treaty concept, we asked David to give us an example of a treaty in action.
0: Yeah, I think that there are other treaties like that, these kind of grand compromises where people gain something and people lose something. I mean, the the most recent one that I think your listeners might be familiar with is the idea of pricing carbon or pricing CFCs and using market incentives to reduce emissions of chemicals that are destroying the atmosphere or destroying the climate. And there were a, a lot of people... On the right, who agreed to that because it was the alternative to simply regulating away the use of CFCs or regulating away the use of carbon, and it allowed their preference for market systems of decision-making. And on the left, for them, it gave up the the kind of regulation and fast movement on the problem at hand, whether it was CFCs and the ozone hole or whether it's carbon and uh, climate change. I mean, and so that I think that's a treaty that is you know, never been fully consummated, but it's, you know, in in California, we have carbon pricing and we have, that's our way of doing, I mean, that was negotiated under Arnold Schwarzenegger, a Republican governor at the time. And it's a very explicit kind of Democrat-Republican treaty. There are plenty of other treaties historically. They're just hard to imagine now because we live in such a polarized time that Democrats and Republicans have a hard time talking with each other about when the sun is going to come up tomorrow, much less large policy challenges or public challenges like climate change or, or education quality.
2: It seems to me that the charter school treaty satisfied and dissatisfied those on both the right and the left, right? It produced a kind of working consensus model and didn't really make anybody happy, but uh, allowed people to drive forward particular items that they believed in. And what I find so interesting here is that Betsy DeVos and her allies never saw this as a settled compromise. They saw it as a stepping stone to a larger aim. And it seems to me that this is the inherent problem with compromise. If you're negotiating with someone with a long-term ideological position, you're never negotiating a lasting peace. Those people will always be waiting for an opening to break the treaty and advance their agenda. And we can see now that the charter school treaty normalized the kind of free market thinking and the ethos of privatization that now are so threatening to the entire system. And I'd, I'd love to just get your reaction to that.
0: I think that's well said. My colleagues in international relations w- will tell me and do tell me that no treaty system is permanent and no treaty system is stable. Treaties always involve compromises where people are giving up things that they hold dear and they do it because they have to because the, you know, the exigencies of the moment require them to engage in the treaty. That's that's why they do it, but it doesn't mean that their interests necessarily change and they often don't have any commitment at all to the treaty itself. They have a commitment to that momentary sort of settlement of conflict. And so any treaty, even international ones like the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, things like that, no treaty is permanent and no treaty is entirely stable, especially if the participants get so used to the treaty that they don't believe that they have to work at sustaining it anymore. If if it just becomes sort of part of the furniture and people just assume it. And I think to some extent that was what began to happen during the Obama administration was that everybody assumed that the charter treaty was stable enough so that they could start trying to find their own workarounds and to get what they wanted within the bounds of that treaty, even though it made the treaty less sustainable. I think that that Betsy DeVos decided to just push it as far as she could push it. And I don't know if she assumed that the treaty would, would remain in place and the Democrats would continue to come to the table. But, but clearly her temperament is one where she just pushes things as far as they could possibly go. And ultimately, if that leads to the breakage of the treaty, well, you know, she got what she could from the treaty as long as she could. And then, and then she stepped out.
1: So, Jack, I thought that that was such an interesting insight from David that we just heard, that here you have the Obama people, and they're so used to operating within this framework that when the Great Recession happens and it's time to, you know, they've got all this money that they can distribute, they just sort of decide, you know what, we're going to kick things up a notch and they've got a whole other agenda that they roll out and i know i i reference arnie duncan's book how schools work on this program constantly but he really lays out how in their minds all these pieces fit together, right? That, that you were going to have the common core, and then you were going to have better assessments, and then you were going to have teacher evaluations that were sort of tied to both. And you could see how they really, they get ahead of themselves, but they also get ahead of the terms of the treaty that we've been talking about. And that's when we really start to see the right getting more and more upset. And there's, you know, there's a case to be made that part of what ushered Donald Trump into the Oval Office was the outrage on the right about the Common Core. And I thought that was so interesting to think about that in terms of the unraveling of the treaty that David has been talking about.
2: Yeah, the treaty sets the terms for what is acceptable with regard to policies and also with regard to the way we talk about public education or any sphere where these kinds of governance treaties, policy treaties uh, might be enacted. And so in pushing past the negotiated settlement between neoliberals and conservatives, uh, you know, it's not to say that Obama and Duncan were pushing a kind of radical leftist agenda. They weren't. They were just pushing a straightforward neoliberal agenda, uh, which identifies a much clearer place for government in the creation of policy. Um, that that ultimately signaled a kind of bad faith to some conservatives, not to DeVos, right? She was never bought into that treaty, um, but to the kinds of centrist conservatives who really supported this working agreement between neoliberals and conservatives uh, that is exemplified by charter schools, right? That it involves a kind of decentralization, but it's not a complete capitulation to the market. Um, And then you've got Arne Duncan and Barack Obama talking about essentially ramping up the use of government to promote market-like behaviors, business-like behaviors, but very clearly situated in big government. And that. That broke the terms of the treaty for some.
1: Way back at the start of this episode, David ran through what Democrats and Republicans got and gave up as they entered into the great charter school treaty. Well, there was an imbalance in their respective concessions. And understanding the why of that imbalance is going to be essential as we start to think about what the post-treaty landscape is going to look like.
0: There's more of a right wing on the Republican Party than there is a left wing on the Democratic Party. And the center of gravity of the Democratic Party, probably until very, very recently, was very centrist. For people like Arnie Duncan and DeFord, they didn't have to give up very much to join the Charter Coalition, whereas people like Betsy DeVos and the Heartland Institute or whatever, they had to give up a lot. I don't think that there was deep dissatisfaction among a lot of Democrats to turn their back on desegregation or to turn their back on teacher unions. I don't think that that was a big Loss for a lot of centrist Democrats, um, in the same way that giving up on religion in schools or giving up on privatization was a loss for a lot of Republicans.
1: Now factor in the intense political polarization of our current moment, and the fact that treaties are temporary by definition. And what are we left with? Well. It turns out that the right's original commitment to private school vouchers never went away. And now that the treaty is unraveling before our eyes, the big push from the right is for the stuff they gave up when they joined the charter school coalition, like religious education. When the Supreme Court recently handed down its pro-voucher ruling, conservative school choice advocates immediately saw an opening for publicly funded religious charter schools. I asked David if this is an example of the right's original goals coming right back to the fore.
0: Exactly so. And this is a re- that's a really good example, Jennifer, that people remained committed to the, the interests that they had before the treaty. And when an opportunity arose for them to, to gain back something that they had lost with the treaty, they'll take it. And this, that's a perfect example of that, where conservatives gave up um, support, in many cases support for religious schools, as part of the deal when they, when they joined in the charter coalition. And now Espinosa opens that up and they'll say, okay, now we're going to go for it. And that's sort of inherent to in any kind of a treaty situation is when opportunities open up, whether or not the parties are ready to go for it.
1: Or take the growing push to just give some portion of school funding directly to parents and let them spend it however they want. It's another example of a very old commitment on the right that never went away. And even as the pandemic has exposed how much we need public systems and public solutions, it has handed a big opportunity to people who don't believe in them at all.
0: One of the challenges that we're seeing that COVID is laying bare is that the challenges that our society faces require long-term systemic responses. If we're going to solve climate change, if we're going to become more resilient in the face of pandemics, if we're going to educate our children, we have to make long-term investments in building public institutions that are capable of doing this stuff. That is not going to happen If these institutions are at the mercy of year-to-year individual family choices to move from one school to another school, you can't sustain public institutions if they run at the whim of market forces. That's just not the logic of systems that are going to protect us from climate change or pandemics or mass unemployment. And I think Betsy DeVos does not care about that. That is just not the world that she lives in. Partly, she's convinced that if you subject everything to individual market choices, everything will turn out well. But second of all, she is really committed to vouchers and to injecting religion into schools and to allowing school entrepreneurs to control these systems and to dismantling the public institutions of school districts and and collective bargaining and unionized teachers. She's a deeply committed political actor. As I think, I mean, where I first ran into your name, Jennifer, is, is that piece that you wrote on Betsy DeVos, The Red Queen, which I think was a brilliant laying out of her political career and her long-term systemic agenda. And now we're seeing her being in place you know, as Secretary of Education, and she's pursuing exactly that career that you laid out in that piece. I don't know, how many years ago did you write that?
1: I wrote that not long after DeVos was nominated I went to Michigan and I motored all around and I talked to people and David I'm so thrilled that that you like the piece and Jack I don't think I'm not sure you even ever read the piece <laughs>
2: Jennifer, you know that I read what you write because you send me mean emails telling me that I need to tweet the link out to people. So, yes, I read it to make sure I wasn't tweeting out, you know, like advertisements to people for uh, some side hustle of yours. And as I think I've said on the show for several years now, um, you know, you were one of the first people to take her seriously. People were dismissing DeVos as an airhead. Uh, And one of the points that you drove home very early on was that she doesn't know basic facts about the public education system because she doesn't care about the public education system. It's not worth learning because her intent is to dismantle it, not to become familiar with it so that she can manage it in some sort of responsible way.
1: Well, thank you for that, Jack. And I actually wanted to compliment you on a little Twitter thread that you had recently. You were commenting on a recent announcement from DeVos and the Department of Education that they would not be giving states waivers for manual testing this year because testing is so important. And I thought, wow, this is something that's really just yanked right from the treaty era. And yet, even as DeVos is spending all of her time doing really any conceivable things she can think of to push the movement of public money into both private institutions and into the hands of individual parents. Here she is pretending that the grand compromise is still in place.
2: I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important to have this conversation about treaties because they aren't just a mechanism for producing a working compromise. They are also a tool that can be used by the politically savvy in order to begin moving forward a long-term agenda Um, sometimes at the expense of the naive who believe that the other side is actually interested in this sort of compromise. And anybody who takes Betsy DeVos at her word right now that testing is important um, is exactly that, naive, because she's been making the case for years that the only people who should have any say about how a school is performing are individual parents acting as private market consumers, and so right now what we're seeing is exactly as you said, the enactment of a kind of informal treaty to see if anybody bites, uh, to see if anybody will join in a kind of alliance there to give her something that she wants for a short-term extension of testing, which ultimately, you know, if, again, if you read anything Betsy DeVos has ever said about it, um, is not in the long-term plan for her.
1: And bite, they did, right? She actually, she singled out a bunch of reform organizations that are very keen on testing kids once they get back into schools. And they really, you could see how pleased these groups and individuals who've kind of fallen off of the radar during the pandemic were to be cited by her, even as it's more and more clear that you know her her goal is not to say use testing data to steer the funding conversation in a direction towards equity
2: the reason that i think this treaty conversation is so important is it now gives us some language for talking about this, right? That we can sort of shout out as this is happening. This is an impermanent treaty that is going to allow her to move one step closer to her long-term aims, right? Instead of sitting around and being puzzled or, uh, you know, pointing the finger and saying, you know, look, she's contradicting herself. um, It's actually more interesting and savvier than that
1: back to David, who spends a lot of time these days trying to make the case for public systems. That's not easy when the people in charge seem committed to dismantling them. And as for the Democrats, let's just say that in the Charter Treaty era, they got out of the habit of defending public institutions.
0: The analogy that I've used with people at times is, do you think that when you choose to fly from Los Angeles to Chicago, when you buy that ticket, then they go and build the airport for you? That's not how this works. I mean, you have to make the investment over a period of decades to build the airport. And it takes generations to establish systems of aviation and passenger travel, air passenger travel. You don't make those decisions on the basis of, you know, like I bought the ticket today and and now you gotta go build the airport. That's not how this works. These are large, complex systems that require long-term investment and a commitment to the creation of shared public goods. And we are now being led by people who on the right don't believe in that. And on the left, I think had imagined that that was no longer necessary. And I think that's the most generous way of understanding Arne Duncan and Democrats for Education Reform, is that they assumed that those public systems were already in place and didn't need defenders. And so they spent much of their time attacking school districts and attacking um, teacher union contracts and attacking education schools that were training teachers and feeding them into the system. And, you know, we are now at a point where all of those large scale, long term public institutions are clearly at risk during the pandemic and the economic crash. And, you know, there are a lot of people that are sort of discovering that maybe these institutions won't automatically survive.
1: That was David menefee Leiby. He's a professor of politics at Pomona College, an occasional virtual coffee mate of our own Jack Schneider. And Jack and I will be right back to mull over what the unraveling of the Charter Treaty means and to reveal the topic of this episode's In the Weed segment for our Patreon supporters. Here's a hint. It has to do with the scams that, as one writer described them recently, are, quote, dissolving America from the inside. Now, what could that possibly happen? Have to do with education. Listening to David talk about the sort of airport conundrum, my first thought, obviously, Jack, was well, what about (laughs) jetpacks?
2: <laughs> That's how we all get around now during uh the pandemic, right? It's a lot safer to travel by jetpack.
1: But I thought that he really he just perfectly captured the treachery of our present moment, that on the one hand, you have these loud and insistent voices on the right saying, you know, just give the, just fund the parents directly. And then you have a lot of people who really should know better, either going along with them or just kind of standing by, right? That we're so used to centrist Democrats being part of the crew that beats up on public systems, that now that they're unraveling, we really have very few organizations or individuals with platforms who are doing the essential work of making the case for those systems. And that really worries me.
2: And I think what this illustrates is something that we talked about earlier, about the impermanence of these treaties. And I think, again, that that's why it's so important to be thinking about these uh, as a kind of conceptual device, right? These treaties can be broken at any time. And to many on the left, this came as like a complete shock. They thought this was settled. They they assumed that traditional public schools would always be there. And now they are reacting in horror to see that they shared completely different assumptions from some of their counterparts on the right, right? Uh, Um, you know, as David says, the airport has to be there. It can't be built on demand. But it turns out that the right isn't committed to shared public goods, right? To extend this metaphor, they don't care if people have access to the airport, right? Get a net jet if that's what you want. Um, So I think that as we reflect on this and we think about these treaties, it's important again to distinguish between compromise, where both sides really view something as settled, um, a kind of permanent policy moving forward where everybody shares the same assumptions and these informal treaties where, you know, there's a chance that somebody's duping somebody else with regard to their motives and their long-term aims.
1: Well, Jack, I absolutely loved getting to crash the Zoom party that you and David have been having, but the conversation also gave me an excellent idea for our Patreon session. (laughs) Do you want to know what I came up with?
2: Uh, I, whenever, Whatever I say, Jennifer, you are going to tell people and you are going to make them pay for access to it. And today I am not participating. I'm going to sit here in silent protest.
1: This is not going to happen. Anyway... <laughs> There was a great piece um, a few weeks ago about how one of the big problems we're having responding to the pandemic is that we're basically basically a nation of small scams, right? <laughs> that every that's what that's the nature of America. That you're you know you're a hustler trying to get rich by selling some some phony product. Um, we can't have effective contact tracing, for example, because no one answers their phone because it's always a telemarketer on the other end. (laughs) And one of the things that it really got me thinking about was that the treaty in some ways by, with the insistence about using test scores as a measure also did keep the scam brigades under wraps to some extent, right? That for-profit online charter schools have always been a problem. You can see that charter advocates have really struggled with how to respond to them, but there hasn't been this sort of out-and-out free-for-all where you just start selling stuff and calling it education. (laughs) And I think that exploring this is a perfect topic for our in the weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. What what say you?
2: I, yeah. <laughs> you know that I want people, I want the people to have the content, Jennifer. But I also really love this topic because my dissertation advisor David Labry used to go on and on about how we are a nation of hucksters and how that is the America, the true American genius. And you really see it play out in the way that we are constantly gaming our school system. Um, and then I'm also thinking of a great book, um, Fast and Curious by Bob Hampel, who we had on the show to talk about the long history of people trying to game uh, the education system for their own benefit. So I'm in but let me remind our listeners that there are other ways to support the show uh, other than becoming a Patreon member. So um, you can go on wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating it helps people find the show. Um, We also like reading those comments some of them are are really delightful. Uh, You can use the show's Twitter handle to send us some ideas. We've gotten some great episodes from your feedback there. Um, And my favorite is always when you share episodes with people who you think might be future listeners to the show, but who you worry are not present listeners. It's an important intervention. We all need to do that work.
1: And if you would like to become one of our Patreon supporters, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast, and you'll see all of the cool extras that you can get just for sending a couple of dollars our way each month, like a custom reading list for each episode. Think how smart you'll be. And access to a subscribers-only area that we call In the Weeds. That's where you can hear Jack and I prognosticate on the coming hucksterization of public education. And of course, you'll get our eternal Gratitude.
2: Mine's not eternal. Mine's mine's temporary like these treaties.
1: On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire.
2: And I'm Jack Schneider.
1: This is Have You Heard.